This podcast is gold. Basketball gold. You're tuned into the best Cleveland Cavaliers podcast in all the land. Basketball gold. Hosted by Mike Fratello and Jeff Phelps. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Basketball Gold with Fratello and Phelps. He is Mike Fratello, NBA head coach with the Memphis Grizzlies, Cleveland Cavaliers, Atlanta Hawks, color analyst now with the Los Angeles Clippers and the Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm Jeff Phelps from 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland, longtime Cleveland broadcaster, back when Mike was coaching. Had fun doing that way back then. Hello, sir. Where are you today? Lovely Salt Lake City. I came in off the slopes this morning to. Nice. Be able to do this show. It was uh, 35 degrees, sunny. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful day out here in Salt. This is a great Salt Lake City. Is a great city. Obviously, you know that I'm kidding about skiing because I couldn't stand up on a ski or skis without falling down. So uh, I, I watch people do that, and I'm amazed. And I have absolutely not one ounce of hoping I could do that. I have no interest in ever skiing. Uh, I couldn't be more with you. I've never been on skis in my life, and I don't think I've missed anything, though I do enjoy watching it. Trying to keep my legs intact the way they are right now, good enough as they are. You've done a fine job with that. Between the the two of us, we have one real hip left, so that's (laughs) we'll keep everything where it is. As we speak, you're in Salt Lake City. And the Cavaliers are getting ready to play the Memphis Grizzlies later on this evening. Uh, it's a an interesting situation for them. Grizzlies are hot. They've won 10 straight games. Cavs are sitting in fifth place in the Eastern Conference right now. They're tied with Brooklyn. They're obviously doing some things with Kevin Durant out with an injury. And the Cavs are on the road tonight, Mike, where they've had trouble, 9-13, and 13, and no Donovan Mitchell out with a groin injury. First of all, let's start with Donovan Mitchell groin injury out tonight Cavs are two and three without Donovan when he doesn't play in a game what do you do because he's been phenomenal you go to the next man up philosophy that you preach from day one as a coach so that everybody in the locker room understands that's why the always stay ready uh, line is always delivered by head coaches because there are nights you just don't know and you turn and you look down the bench and you point and you say, it's your turn tonight. And that's your chance to showcase what you can do when the team really needs you. Uh, so whoever it is that they elect to pick up the minutes, and sometimes it's not quite as easy as you think because logic is say, okay, let's take the sixth man and move him up now. But then what does that do to the second unit? Sometimes it disrupts that group. Depending on who the matchup is, you might have somebody that's better against one team than it would be against another team. Uh, All those things factor in of what you're missing, and you're missing a a huge piece. But I'm going to knock on wood right here, okay? And that's not my head, Jeff. Don't make a joke (laughs) out of that. Um, That the Donovan Mitchell games that he misses are small in comparison to what a lot of teams have to go through throughout the season with one of their premier players missing a lot of time. And I happened to do some games for that other team, the Los Angeles Clippers, and their head coach, Ty Lue, who we remember from the championship year. Very fondly, and we thank him every day. Ty Lue every day gets up and really doesn't know who's playing tonight in the game because he has to wait for the medical report. 
between Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who don't play back-to-back games. So here they played last night at home against Philadelphia, lost 120-110, fly, get into Salt Lake City about 2 a.m. in the morning, and now have to play at 7 o'clock tonight against Utah, who was resting. And he knows already he will not have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard because they don't play back-to-back games. Mm. So coaches are manipulating these things all the time. And for Utah, it's a good night because a guy named Markinen, who I think you may remember from Cleveland, Laurie Markinen, is finally coming back to play for them tonight. He's been missing, and they've been struggling because he's been missing. So there is some kind of connection between really, really good players missing the game and the teams struggling somehow. What you just said, Mike, about the Clippers and Ty Lue with Kawhi Leonard and with Paul George, I think might stick in people's heads when we think about Donovan Mitchell. As you said, we all hope that it's not a long absence for Donovan, but he's been so good not just for the Cavs, but on an NBA level. You know, we've thrown out MVP with, with his name, and, and rightfully so. You don't want to push this. Right? A groin injury can linger, and you don't want that to happen. Are you willing to bite the bullet if you're a team, Mike? And, and not just the Cavs in this situation, but, man, I, I would think you want to get him right before, you, you know, you even put him back out on the floor. The Cavs play Memphis tonight. Then they're home back-to-back Friday, Saturday, Tuffy against Golden State and Milwaukee. And Mike, if you if you had to bite the bullet on on three or four games here, that's better than trying to nurse something all season, isn't it? It's really a tough decision to make because you have the medical staff who helps out to a certain extent, and they can read MRIs, they can read x-rays in the case of broken bones, those types of things, uh, and take you so far with the decision that you should sit out for this period of time. But in actuality, the player knows when he's ready to go, how he feels. And the other side of it is medical staffs that have to fight players from hurting themselves because they're Mm. too anxious to get back too soon. So to the point that the medical staff can see this particular injury, whatever it might be, a groin in this instance with Donovan, it's not ready. They can see that by the x-rays, by the MRIs, whatever they had taken, stretching exercises that he can or cannot do, they know to say, no, you're not ready yet, you can't come back yet. But when that, to them, is to the point that they can't read anything else, so they have to turn to the player and say, how do you feel? And then it's the player who says, I'm ready to go, I know I can go. Well, it's a little tender right now, maybe I better wait another day. Yeah. You wait another day. You don't want him to go out there and re-injure that thing. That's for sure. The Cavs, and and this comes into play here, I think, Mike. Donovan out. Cavs are fourth in the NBA in starter minutes played. And I I know we've talked about that a little bit. And JB is doing what he has to do to win basketball games. We all get it. We all understand it. Before tonight's game with Memphis, the productivity off the bench, it's – it hasn't been, I'm sure, what JB would like it to be. They're 24th in bench minutes, but 28th in bench scoring, Mike. So you're going to have to take somebody from that bench, put him in Donovan's spot, which weakens the bench a little bit. Can you ride your starters? And, and do you have to do that against a team like Memphis? I would think you do. 
you know, a team that's won 10 straight games, they're hotter than blazes and then golden state and Milwaukee coming up. It just I, it, kind of a precarious situation. I think when your best guy, Donovan Mitchell goes out and what's been a little, uh, I'll say unproductive for lack of a better word, maybe bench now gets taxed a little bit more. Well, the same thing has happened with the Clippers because of the number of the games that the key guys are missing. That bench group has to step up, move up into the first unit, which weakens their second unit. For the first time in a long time in last night's game against Philadelphia, their second unit was outscored by Philadelphia's second unit. Mm. And it was surprising when I saw the box at the end of the game. I looked there right away to see what the productivity had been. And it's unusual when the Clippers bench is outscored because they have a deep roster very similar to the Cavaliers. Uh, Sometimes you get two or three guys in a group that struggle at the same time, and it makes such a huge difference. You know, Kevin Love, we know what kind of shooter Kevin Love is. Uh, Right now, going through a little bit of a, a tough stretch here where shots just aren't falling for him. And then Jetty made lose his confidence every now and then because if his minutes go backwards then he feels maybe the coach isn't satisfied with what he's doing. And, you know, they've played Jetty at the beginning of the year and really trusted him and he's been very productive, but I don't want to see Jetty and I'm hoping he doesn't get back to what's happened the last couple of years with down the backstretch that last third of the season, he's not close to being as productive as he's been in the beginning of the season. They need him. And as far as the minutes, are they loading up minutes? I I think, you know, we're so careful now with watching how many minutes the players play. Uh, We sometimes go overboard on that. If a coach is playing players too many minutes to where they jeopardize them getting injuries because of it, that's one thing. But let's think back all the years of the NBA and how many players played 38 to 42 minutes every night yeah, and it didn't hurt any of them, and I don't think they've changed what the courts are all about. So they're not landing on cement now, as they were landing on wood years ago. So uh, I think that's more like it's like pitchers in baseball now can only throw X number of pitches, so they only go five and a half, six innings, and then they're out. Yeah. Even if they're pitching a great game, yeah. they're out because of their arm. Meanwhile, it was a a badge of honor to do a complete game in baseball years ago. Now who does complete games anymore? Come on, give me a break. So it takes five pitchers to finish one game. Now, even if you have a three run, four run lead, because everybody has a spot. You're the sixth inning guy. You're the seventh inning guy. You're the closer. It's so the same thing's happening in other sports. And if, if we told our guys every day, listen, to earn your money, you're going to have to play a minimum of 36 minutes every night. Now, there you go. I yeah. don't know how many would vote. No, you keep my money. I don't want to play 36. I can't do that. I, yeah. <laughs> I think they'd find a way. I think you're right. You mentioned Kevin Love and, and a shooting slump for Kevin. And Mike, I am so hopeful that he's just bothered by that thumb injury that he had earlier in the season. And it's not quite right because these his numbers are, are a little concerning and frightening. Uh, his scoring average last year was 13.6 points a game when he did a really nice job coming off the bench. He's down now to 8.8 points per game on this season. And I found and, and his minutes are actually about the same and the rebounding's about the same. But 
Kevin's scoring this year, and I found this st- a little startling, is down every month from 11.7 in October, 9.9 in November, 8.2 in December, and now six points a game so far in January. And he injured that thumb in, in late November, I believe is when it was. And the minutes are up in January here, but that scoring is way down, and he's shooting 18% on three-pointers here in the month of January, excuse me, 16.7, I think he's a Hall of Fame player, Mike, and he's been a tremendous player throughout his career. How do you give a guy like that the benefit of the doubt and think, all right, maybe it's just his thumb and he's working through something and having to deal with this? Because I think he's too good of a player to think that he's done. Jeff, refresh my memory. The thumb that was broken was the right thumb. Correct. Shooting Therefore, hand. That's a shooting hand. Yeah. So the first thing you have to do with a broken thumb is catch the ball. When somebody's passing you the ball and they're not just tossing you, okay, uh, a a soft, okay, cotton ball. Yeah. Pass you that leather ball blown up with nine pounds of air. Fast. Catch that with defenders all over you. Once you catch it and get past that pain, then you go to the next stage, teeing it up and trying to get a shot off. And it also may limit his ability to put the ball on the floor, two or three dribbles, and get to places that he would normally be able to do. And Kevin was very good at making his free throws when he would get fouled. I'd be curious with those numbers that you were talking about, how much has his free throw shooting dropped since the beginning of, of the season to where we are right now? I have that for you. You want it? Oh, great. Um, October, 87%, 85% in November, 91, 92% in December. And here in January, it's 91%. But how many attempts each month? That's, I mean, I, uh, can, I can shoot 90% on two free throws or three. I better I'll bet you could. <laughs> um. He's averaging about the same, Mike. The November was the big month, 2.8 free throws per game. Here in January, it's 1.4. In December, it was 0.9. So maybe not quite as aggressive, you know, since that thumb injury in going to the basket or doing some other things, yeah. And remember, when you shoot the foul shot, you're not having to catch the ball first. No. Unless, Unless the referee is firing a pass to you from under the basket out to the foul line when you get the foul shot. And you can yell at him if he does. Yes, so that's good. We'll throw the ball back to him. <laughs> and get a T. <tea. laughs> yes. This is Basketball Gold with Fratello and Phelps. He's Mike Fratello. I'm Jeff Phelps. Mike, this is something, and we've not discussed this ahead of time, so I don't know what you think about this. But it's something that I've always, it, it's bothered me, to be perfectly honest. And I don't want it to bother me, but it kind of does. It's the proliferation of the three-point shot in the NBA. Now, I, I like the three-point shot. Don't get me wrong. I like it. And I, I went to a website called statmuse.com that has some great information. And, and I guess my point that I don't like about the three is I hate when guys who don't shoot the three very well shoot threes because analytics tell the NBA coaches three is more than two and blah, blah, blah. And, and we, we all know that. And it's, it's actually true, but the NBA first used the three pointer in 1979. I've got some amazing stats here that you're, you're going to cringe about as a coach, but, but first of all, do you like the three point shot in the NBA? 
it's such an integral part of the game right now. If you don't like it, that's a real problem as a coach because it changes games in an instant. It gets you back into games where you're down 20, 25. You can get back in a matter of four or five minutes to where it's a manageable deficit and you really have a chance to win. As opposed to in the past, you're down 25 points depending on how much time is left in the game. You pretty much have a hard time uh, coming back and, and making up those points. So uh, it opens games up so quickly. You can be involved in a three, four-point game. All of a sudden, the team comes down, hits a couple threes. Uh, and, and I think it also forces coaches to really make decisions on how quickly do you want to call timeouts. If you mm. say to yourself, now ah, we'll let it go one more possession, and they hit another three, then you're looking at an even bigger deficit, and then you're kicking yourself in the behind because you're saying, I should have taken that time out before. you got to really watch to not let teams get on a roll, particularly with three-point shots. Teams are built nowadays, Jeff, on whether or not you have enough three-point shooters on your roster. Yeah. And don't think the evaluation process with every position now. Look at Valanchunas uh, from um, New Orleans the other day. I mean, this is a seven-footer who goes out behind a three-point line and shoots threes rather easily. And I'm not talking about players like Nowitzki's that wore fours, but then they became fives later on in their career. Right. I'm talking about guys who are seven feet, 280 pounds, bruisers, that now can go out there and make a shot in there. Brooke Lopez. There's there's a few of them in the league that we have right now. Yeah, Brooke Lopez kind of reinvented that aspect of his game and and added that three-point shot. These are the stats, Mike, that I found that I I think are are pretty stunning. And it's from statmuse.com. And they broke it down by decades with a three-point shot. And these, these are attempts per decade is what, what they had, you know, so they averaged everything out 1980s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s now. And in the 1980s, teams attempted, it said 3.53 attempts per game, which was not a lot, right? It was not a big part of the game. In the 90s, it jumped from 3.5 to 11.4. In 2015, 15.7. In the 2010s, from 15.7 up to 23.1. And then now in the 2020s, 34.6 attempts per game from behind that three-point line. So exponential growth every decade. I guess that's to be expected. And with the analytics coming into it and everything else. And when I saw that, Mike, I thought, all right, that's because guys are shooting the three better. And here's the one, here's the thing I couldn't believe. In the 1980s, Guys shot 28.9% on threes. But remember, they're not taking very many. And then these are for the 90s, 2000s, 2010, 2020s. The shooting percentage has barely moved. It was 34.7 in 1990, 35.6 in 2000s. In the 2010s, 35.6. And then 35.9 here in the 2020s. So basically... 36% since 2000 on every decade. I found that surprising because I would have thought the guys would get a lot better at it. And maybe some have. Do, do those numbers strike you as funny? I, I think there's a couple things there, Jeff. Um, one is it's skewed a little bit from the standpoint. 
you don't see the jump you thought you would see and the percentage is going up that much. However, remember that word, however. Yeah. However. Yeah. And it's key here. That many more players are being allowed to shoot threes now than they were back when. Right. When Reggie Miller was knocking out threes for Indiana all those years, not a lot of guys on rosters were allowed to shoot threes. They had different roles. You know, it was like you sit in your team meeting and you go, you, you don't take five threes a game. You can't make a three. You know, you explain to them, this is our guy and that's our guy that shoots threes. Right. They're going to take the majority of our threes. Every once in a while, we'll have other people. But these are like our three ball specialists. Now it's all five positions shoot threes. So that may be part of the reason that you're getting more people involved on the team by positions and allowing them to shoot threes as part of the offense, which might be, you know, stopping the jump that you were expecting to see. And then the other thing was, who are we blaming for this? Because you always have to put blame <laughs> on somebody. So that's, got, like, that's what I'm thinking. You got to blame somebody. <laughs> I've got a fall guy for us if you want him. All right, who is it? Let's blame Rick Pitino. Because when Pitino came in the NBA, all right, coming out of college basketball, yeah, he's the one that started shooting a lot of threes during the games. So it may not have been Rick, but that's the one I can remember right now in shooting so many more than anyone else. I'm sure Doug Moe wouldn't have minded playing that way back when Doug was coaching. Sure, but when Rick came into the league, uh, you know, coaching Boston and uh, then I guess the Knicks after that. That was their style of play. They shot a lot of threes. And, you know, his disciples, who then went on to become head coaches in the NBA, the Billy Donovans, for example, in Chicago right now, they followed what they learned and were taught and what they liked from Rick Pitino. So if we needed somebody to blame, we're going to blame Rick Pitino today. I love you, Rick. So I'm giving you a a good, bad compliment, okay? That's I'm sure he appreciates that. Now, see, but what you just said goes back to my point about this thing kind of bugging me a little bit. I love watching a guy like Steph Curry shoot threes. I mean, how how can you not like that? And I'm, I'm looking right now at the list of, of percentage leaders. Uh, Luke Kennard is on it. You see him with the Clippers. He's got a beautiful shot. Other guys have developed it. Al Horford is actually on this list. Um, there are some guys who can shoot it really well. Should the guys who don't shoot it really well, Mike, that, that's where my little feeble mind doesn't work. Is it better for the game to have guys who don't hit a high percentage take them because the analytics say you have an adequate shot of, of giving us three instead of two? That's the thing, I guess, that bugs me the most is I just see guys who can't shoot it shooting it. And I think it leads to an ugly game. I'm 100% in agreement with you. I, I feel that's the coach's job to explain to the team and the team has to understand and buy into what the coach is saying. You have an analytics department on one hand on every team that's feeding all this information. And I think here's where you need that unity of front office and staff so that you're all on the same page. You can't have front office and staff saying one thing. Meanwhile, the coaches say, I don't believe in that. I have a guy that doesn't make threes. He's shooting 12% from the three point line. I don't want him taking threes. I want him to take high percentage shots. I want him getting down low or getting to 15 feet or 14 feet where he's pretty good in that area making shots. And maybe he'll get fouled and get a three that way. But I'll give up the one point to get the bucket. But I don't like the idea that he's taking 
shots that he can't make at a very low percentage because what it's doing is it's putting your defense on the heels. Long shots that miss usually equal long rebounds. Now that team's out running in transition. Your defense is trying to scramble to get back. You have mismatches at the other end of the floor. All of that takes place because of a missed three-point shot. So I, if I was coaching nowadays, we would shoot our share of threes. It's part of the game. And sure. if you want to win games, you're going to have to shoot them. And it However, is a weapon. It is a weapon. It is. However, guys who are not three-point shooters that shoot a very low percentage, I would have had my talk with them and in front of the team. You have to do it in oh. front of the team individually, whichever one you want to do first. If you do it with the team first and not the individual, you could be embarrassing a player who, you know, plays very sensitive. Like most people are sensitive when they think it's about you. But if you go talk to the guy first and say, we're going to bring this up in the team meeting because you're not the only guy. We have a couple other guys that this falls on them as well. So in the team meeting, when you say, you know, I've had a talk with some of the guys on the team and, we're going to try and get better percentage shots. We're going to try and take better shots with our offense to have a higher rate of efficiency in our offensive game. Last thing on this, Mike, and my gut tells me the answer to this is no. But should the NBA think about tweaking the three-pointer? And my, my gut tells me just leave it alone. But a couple of ideas. There's always been the talk of moving the line back. The corner threes are shorter than the out top threes. Do you change the line and get rid of corner threes? Could you limit the three-pointer to the final three or four minutes of a quarter? Would you want to do something like that? Um, would you want to designate, and I think this is stupid, but would you want to designate just a couple of guys who are allowed to shoot threes? My gut tells me you just leave it alone. I would think that makes the answer so much easier to say it that way rather than go into some of those are some great ideas that you've come up with. Uh, or you go along with what Popovich said. The game would really be something. I think he may have called it a circus, if I'm if I'm right. It if we right. a four-point shot yeah. and a five-point shot. From way said, out top, right? That's all we're missing, he said. Yeah. It would really be a circus. I'll try and get used to the three-point shot being shot by guys who aren't very good at it. That's that's the part that bugs me. This is Basketball Gold with Fratello and Phelps. I'm Jeff Phelps. My partner is Mike Fratello. And Mike, by trade, is a basketball coach. He is a basketball analyst and one of the best in the business at both of those things. He's also a winemaker. Now, this I, I knew, but I didn't know everything about it. But, you know, Mike, you do a lot of things. You're a creative guy. You're always thinking. But you told me a story the other day, and I thought, that could only happen to Mike Fratello. <laughs> and it started in a restaurant with a little girl. Can, can you lay the groundwork on this thing? Well, the background is about 14, 15 years ago, I was introduced to a, a place in New Jersey, where I'm from. And it's a huge kind of like an airplane hangar. And in oh, there, wow. they have many barrels and vats. And they give you the ability because of connections to people out on the West Coast, uh, most notably in the Napa Valley area. And we have a guy out there that 
calls us end of August, first week of September, and, and says, here are the grapes that I feel are the best this season. And he goes through all the different valleys out, you know, Napa Valley, Alexander Valley, Lodi Valley. And here are the best cab grapes. Here are the best Merlot, you know, and you want to make do a meritage, you take these grapes with this grape. And he's a very trustworthy person. So what you do is you order the grapes that you want out there from California, and they ship them to this place in New Jersey. Since the 15-year mark back when, a number of places now started to pop up doing this in, in various places. But the grapes get shipped into New Jersey. You've got to get them there in four days after they pick them. And they crush the grapes in the vats. They let them sit there for the time period, whatever. It's three, four, five days that they have to sit there, see all that sugar rise up to the top. And then if you are one of the winemakers that belong to this establishment called Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S, Bacchus Winery in New Jersey, you have your barrels there or barrel there. You know, some people have one barrel. Some people have two barrels. They're 55-gallon barrels, 65-gallon barrels. And as soon as you have crushed them and they've sat there, they take them and feed them into your barrel. And then you let it sit and you watch and you decide. Most people can't wait past a year. After yeah. a year, they want their wine. They got to have it. When I started my cycle, I started with two years. And if you leave it in for two years, you can call it a reserve. So after the first two years, I had already started the next barrel after year number one. So now we were on a cycle that every year we'd be producing a wine. And it started with waiting that first year and not doing anything at the end of the first year. And I've done all, every, you know, every type that you can think of, the, the blends, the meritages, the cabernets, Barolo. About two years ago, we, we tried a Barolo grape. Listen to you. And gone into a new new area now, which is called Susun, and it's spelled, I think, S-I-U-S-U-N, Susun Valley, uh, maybe 30 miles from Napa. And we grabbed grapes from there and used them, and they came out great. And it must be pretty good because if you watch on your shelves when you go to buy wine, Camus has now produced two new wines. One is Walking Man, and I forgot the other one. but Camus picked the grapes from Susun Valley, and they're not bad, Camus, as you, as you all know that name probably. So, yeah. so that's what happens. So the problem, Jeff, is when you get done waiting your two years, yeah, we we have like a little party or a gathering up there with uh, maybe eight, ten of my friends from New Jersey, or I've brought people in from Ohio. And what's the name of your label, Mike? Well, that changed from <laughs> that changed from. Fratello, my name, uh, Il, okay, Fratello. Yeah. yeah. Or after two years, a friend of mine, George Zampelli, wanted to come in and be a partner. I said, George, you can't be a partner because you have to change the name on the wine then. And he goes, well, let's think about it. So my daughter, who speaks Italian fluently, said, you know, Dad, if you take the first four letters of your name, and the last four in the letters of Mr. Zampelli's name, uh, which are uh, mine are F-R-A-T, his are E-L-L-I, and you put them ah. together, it's not fratello, it's fratelli. And in Italian, fratello means brother, fratelli means brothers, it's plural. 
So we changed our label to Fratelli wine, the brother's wine. And we have a little message we write on the back every year. Nice. That we nice. So George stayed my partner maybe eight, nine years. And that decided he had enough wine in his house and he didn't need any more. <laughs> so we went back now the last couple of years to Fratello. Okay. And when you get done and you have your little bottling party where you take it out of the barrel yeah. into the bottles, you have, everybody has stations. So one person's filling the bottles up. You put them under the things and wine's coming out. You pass it to the person that's putting the corks in them. Then you pass it to the person that's burning the seal on the top of it in the machine that burns them on and melts them. Then you pass it to the last group that are putting the labels on it. I'm all confused. That's our little, <laughs> that's our little assembly line that we have. Now the problem though, Jeff, is yeah. that you have to get the wine back to Ohio. If that's where you want it to go to my house. Yeah. Well, shipping costs have gone sky high. They're nuts. So it was going to cost me over a thousand dollars to ship. If you have a 55 gallon barrel, you get about 21 boxes out of it. Ooh. You get 221 bottles of wine, 65 gallon. You get 288 bottles in a 65 gallon, which is like 24 cases right in that area. So we're sitting there thinking, oh, well, let's wait until the wine prices. So they held the wine in the, place where you bottle it so the temperature is controlled etc and we're at a restaurant the marble room in downtown cleveland fabulous spot fabulous fabulous spot we love the marble room and sitting at the table and a, a young lady comes up maybe she's 10 years old and she said are you mike fratello the basketball coach and i said i am and she said okay i thought you were and I wanted to say hello. I said, well, thank you for coming over. And her, just then her dad appears. And he said, I'm so sorry, but I was telling my children who you were. And she said, can I go say hello to him? I said, yeah, go ahead. I said, well, you know, where are you from? I said, your daughter said something about you came here for dinner. And he said, we're from New Jersey. I said, well, she said, you came for dinner. He said, we did. We drove from New Jersey for dinner at the wow. Marble Wow. And I went, what? <laughs> so I came here on a business trip about three weeks ago, went home, told my wife and children, there's a fabulous restaurant in Cleveland. We're going to go back one weekend. So we drove back to have dinner this weekend. I said, I wish I would have known. I would have asked you to pick up my wine and bring it back for me. And he goes, well, I would have done that. And well, if you come back again, I'll let you know. He said, you tell me when you want me to come back and I'll pick it up and bring it. So we looked at the calendar, one with the Cavs playing at home. We picked out Martin Luther King Day. He and his family drove back on Sunday. Wow. From Martin Luther King Day on Monday, they drove back with 24 cases of wine in the car. 24? Range Rovers, they hold a lot. Uh, actually, you know what? They drove back with 21 cases. I left uh. three of them in New Jersey so I could give them out to my friends up there in Jersey. I don't have to ship them back up there or carry them with me. And for the 21 cases in the Range Rover, brought them to the house, put them downstairs in my basement. I left them tickets for the game on Monday, the game against New Orleans on Martin Luther King Day for his family. After the game, we took them up to Little Italy. We went to La Dolce Vita that day, had a great meal by Terry Tarantino. And he said after the meal that he is forever 
my wine mule. So I am set for <laughs> wine delivery from now on. That's a long story, but that's your answer. Mike, you're the only guy I know who a 10-year-old girl will come up and say, I'm here for dinner from New Jersey, and you get a guy delivering your wine out of the deal. It turned out to be a great deal for everybody. They got to see the Cavs win. They got a free dinner in Murray Hill. And on, and we really have become a very, uh, very, very close friends with them now in this period of time because we stayed in touch by phone or by text messages. And and they're they're great. They're solid people. I mean, that's nice. the kind of people that you want to be associated with. And they don't over. They're not overbearing. You know, they're not trying to ask you for something all the time or want. Yeah. They, they're just a great, solid family. And and. The interesting part of it, when we started talking, night number one, his wife, Mariana, is from Ukraine. Oh, she wow. She was born in Kiev, and they got married. But that obviously was a lot of our story because of my association with Ukraine and coaching right. the national team. Exactly. So I, I stay very close. So how about this? They brought back with them a present. It was a Ukrainian flag made out of wood. And the person who carved it, it actually has the ripples in it. Wow. The piece of wood is and painted with the blue and their gold colors. And it's a mini, mini Ukrainian flag. Maybe, maybe the size of a laptop computer, a little bit smaller than the big laptops, but that you can hang on a wall, which was a, a great present from them. I really appreciate it. That's awesome. Story time with Mike. I love it. <laughs> Enjoy Salt Lake City. And we'll have another podcast coming up. Uh, you have the Clippers game, Cavs in Memphis as we speak. I uh, can't wait to talk to you all about it. Thanks, buddy. Jeff, where do you think we're going after the game tonight? Um, to an Italian restaurant and having some Fratello wine? Going to Walter's. Exactly. Walter's <laughs> is an unbelievable. See, people think it was supposed to be Walter's. It's not. Walter. Walter. And it's it was in my top five Italian restaurants in the United States and still is. And wow. unfortunately, Walter, the owner, and he was the slave driver in there. Everybody stood at attention. The chefs produced. The restaurant is so well known. Uh, I can't tell you how many basketball teams and coaches go there now from the many years of me spreading the word. And Walter passed away three months ago. Ah. So it's going to be a combination going in and seeing the people there that I've known for so many years. And I've already talked to his family and paid my respects, but this will be my, my chance to go back there and, and remember a lot of photos that nice. are in there and, and his great food. Enjoy that evening. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, partner. Mike Fratello. It's basketball gold with Fratello and Phelps. This has been basketball gold. 